Hello everyone, and welcome to this podcast by the Trinity Members Committee of the Royal College of Physicians Veterans. My name is Dr. Jonathan Barnett. I am an acute internal medicine and general internal medicine specialist registrar in the South East of Scotland. Today I'm joined by Dr. James Tierney. He is a consultant physician in respiratory and general internal medicine with a specialist interest in pulmonary embolism. Today, this podcast is focusing on the investigation and management of acute PE and follow-up of this in this COVID-19 pandemic. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. James Tierney. Welcome, James. Thank you very much, Johnny. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. Um, This is my very first podcast experience. And I've been a big fan of podcasts over the last couple of years. So I'm very much hoping that this will be the beginning of a journey. And I anticipate a big money book deal and a speaking tour will follow from this. That's right, isn't it? Yes. So um, we're thrilled to have you here in the podcast. Um, can I start by asking you, so tell, could you please tell the listeners why we're talking about acute pulmonary embolism today? Fantastic question. Uh, why not is the question. Um, it, because it's, it's the best disease, potentially. Um, so I, I guess I'm, I'm hugely biased and everything you'll, you'll hear during this podcast is, is heavily biased. Um, but I, I love pulmonary embolism. Um, I'm very much a, an enthusiastic amateur in this world. Um, I think it's a really interesting pathology because it doesn't discriminate um, anybody can have a pulmonary embolism um, I it, you know it, it can literally instantaneously kill a person so so it has to be a very interesting world um, I really from, from my clinical perspective I, I enjoy the idea of being able to help look after somebody who comes in so acutely unwell potentially in a, a life-threatening crisis and hopefully um, help them get better acutely. And it's one of the few uh, modern illnesses where you can recover completely. Um, So it's very fulfilling to to look after these people uh, at the front door as inpatients and then to see them back at clinic when they are hopefully back to um, their normal level of function. Lots of people get back to their normal family lives, to their working lives. And for me, that's a really fulfilling role to be part of, of that journey for that person. Um, so I, I think it's a, a brilliant thing to be involved with. I guess I also find it interesting because it straddles a, a number of different worlds. You know, I'm, I'm still not sure um, who owns this disease, if you will. I, I don't know if it's a respiratory disease, whether it's a thrombotic disease, a cardiovascular disease. Is it a, a malignant phenomenon or, or just a marker of morbidity? Um, and I enjoy dealing with the uncertainty that's around uh, pulmonary embolism. So I guess for all of those reasons, uh, I enjoy being, being part of this conversation. That's a really great introduction, James. Um, I guess that need, uh, leads nicely into my next question, and that would be, why does PE happen? Right, that, that's, a, that's a good one. It's back to fundamentals, isn't it? It's, it's back to all that stuff that we've actively tried to forget about since medical school. And, and, and for me, I, I am a very simple-minded person, and I like to think in, in, in very simple ways. But it's all the way back to Verkov's triad. I still don't know if it's Verchai or Verkov. Certainly in Belfast, we were taught Verkov's triad. And it's all the way back to 
that, that simple triad of, of reduction in blood flow, wall irregularity, uh, and hypercoagulable states. And I guess, you know, that, that the classic syndrome would be uh, the person who's just had an orthopedic hip fracture, who has been in a hospital for a day or two, um, has their hip operated on, and potentially in the post-operative phase, it gets an infection, perhaps a, a post-operative pneumonia. And that's, that's a perfect combination of somebody who's had an injury, it has reduced mobility, is probably somewhat dehydrated, um, has had trauma to, to their bones and their blood vessels as part of the surgery, um, and as part of their healing process and the septic process, they have a hypercoagulable state. So yeah, I, I guess that's the classic three ingredients that, that make people clot. Um, and you know, we were all taught a lot of uh, thrombotic risk factors to ask about way back in, in medical school, uh, and nowadays we we've. I guess we, we recognize them as more of a hierarchy. Um, we were all taught about long haul plane flights and travel and those kinds of things. So I think nowadays we recognize that that's probably in the lowest rank of, of the hierarchy. Um, really, the, the highest ranking risk factors are those people that have been hospitalized with acute illnesses, particularly in critical care, those that have undergone trauma and been hospitalized. And then I guess the intermediate risk category of those with chronic or acute inflammatory diseases, infectious diseases, hormonal therapy, thrombophilia is that group. And again, that probably incorporates everybody who's currently hospitalized. Uh, and then all the way down into the lower risk factors that I've already mentioned, such as a, a mild reduction in your mobility or, or a longer haul uh, travel. That's great, James. So my understanding from what you've said is that really we as clinicians should be asking or be aware of the risk factors, be it transient or permanent, that our patients present with. But how, in your own words, should we be recognising these patients? And, and you've already alluded to where we're seeing them, in, in the wards and in the hospital. Um, so how should we be recognising patients who have PE? Uh, well, I, I guess if a... If I were trying to suggest some approaches um, for, for um, more junior clinicians um, or, or those at the front door, um, I think, like everything, it just goes all the way back to basics. It's about taking a really good history. What actually happened to this person and what symptoms have they come in with? And that will inform the likelihood of, of everything else. Uh, you know, if you think about the, the classic presenting features of pulmonary embolism in terms of shortness of breath or, or pleuritic chest pain, um, that, that's absolutely fine. But, but you, you, know, you really have to contextualize those symptoms. An awful lot of people presenting to a hospital nowadays have chronic breathlessness. Uh, and, and the question for those guys might be something about, has there been an abrupt change? And again, when I, I torture our medical students, we think about how many things truly caused instantaneous breathlessness. And that list is quite short, but certainly pulmonary embolism is one of them. So an abrupt and acute instantaneous change. And then the, the chest pains are an interesting thing. You know, so many people present to every hospital, every acute receiving unit, every ambulatory care unit, every emergency department with, with chest pains of some description. Um, and it's a really challenging scenario to be in before you have the results of lots of tests. 
Um, and I think we under-recognize the role of musculoskeletal chest pain, which is probably the common reason for presenting with pleuritic chest pain. Um, and I think if you, you dig in deeper into the history, you may well find out um, quite commonly that the person has had a, a degree of um, trauma, recurrent low-grade trauma, muscle strain, over overexertion, um, that may well be the cause of that person's symptoms rather than pulmonary embolism. Something I've learned um, in, in recent years is to really not accept the history that anybody else has taken, uh, particularly if it's a, a less experienced member of your team, and don't just believe what they've told you and make your decisions based on that, particularly if you're a registrar and you're relying on the, the histories of that have been taken by uh, the more junior your guys in the team. So for me, it's about going back and, and really nailing the, the details of that history to convince yourself that this is or isn't a significant problem. Um, so for me, there's something there, something about your examination. And, and if you're thinking it's a, it might be musculoskeletal, you know, give them a good press around the area that you think uh, may be tender. And if that person jumps off the bed because you've palpated the area that they're referring to, and if they're telling you it's a reproducible pain, it's, it's highly likely that that is a musculoskeletal injury, you know. Um, some, something I've noticed in, in, in very recent times is, you know, we are getting... Um, very quick formal radiological reports of, of plain chest x-rays, certainly where I work, um, which in terms of you know the quality of x-ray reporting is, is a real step forward. But I think one of the, the, the traps there might be that um, we are defaulting to looking at the x-ray report without looking at the x-ray. Uh, and we as, as clinicians have, have the benefit of a context and a, and a more rich story about that person. And I think we have to acknowledge that our, our radiology colleagues are trying to interpret uh, radiological findings uh, without all of that additional information. Um, so it means that you know, their interpretation of a, an x-ray, for example, maybe a small area of opacification in the lower zone or a small effusion or something, they're probably more likely to say that that looks more like infection. But I think if you have a very different context from the history and the examination, uh, then you know, that, that could well be infarction or PE-associated effusion. Uh, so I think trying not to bias ourselves by reading a report or listening to what somebody else has said and perhaps going in with a, a more open mind and to take that story afresh and, and come to your own conclusions. That's really helpful advice, James. I think the key message I'm getting is that it's all about putting it all together and really thinking rather than just relying on reports from radiology. Um, are there any other tools that we can use or our junior clinicians can use to help them in ruling out a suspicion of PE? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are lots of tools out there, and they're all, um, lots of them are validated to, to various levels, uh, and, and certain organizations will, will favor um, certain tools. I, I guess, all, all, every, despite what I've said, once the question about pulmonary embolism has been raised, it, 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 it needs ruled out, you know, either clinically or, or clinically plus using those tools. And it becomes quite difficult to rule it out once it's been raised. It's almost like, could this be Addison's? Well, I guess it could be, and now you have to rule it out. Um, you know, and, and I guess some of the, the more well-recognized and validated scores include things like Geneva scores or WELL scores. Um, certainly here we use uh, the PE WELL score or the simplified revised Geneva score. Um, 
and, and they will break down a, a person's likelihood of having uh, an event. Uh, and it really breaks down into background risk factors like chronic cardiorespiratory disease, active cancer, things like that. So what's the person's context? And what's their age and their sex? And then it uses some clinical acute parameters in terms of heart rate, oxygenation, those kinds of things to try to come up with uh, a number. You can then categorize the person according to that score um, as uh, a likely or unlikely or a three-tiered system. Now, I guess most places will then combine that with a, an acute D-dimer um, blood uh, and try to understand what the, the likelihood of that person having an event then is. And I guess where these things really come into their own is trying to rule it out without further scanning. And um, so trying to minimize harm for that person or inappropriate uh, use of resource. So I guess if you have a low risk well score, clinically you're not really that convinced, but you want to, to rule it out and you're not sure. So a low risk um, pretest probability plus a normal D-dimer is hugely reassuring that this person is not presenting with an acute venous thromboembolic event and the likelihood of them coming back with one in the next three, 30 days is really quite low. So I guess that's the strength of those types of tools. And so from what you're saying, um, the D-dimer is a really useful test to rule out those low risk probability patients. But often sometimes in the acute medical admissions unit or the emergency department, a D-dimer might have been done as a, as a routine uh, test and then sometimes it comes back positive um, and then we have a decision to make. Um, are there things that we need to bear in mind that might be the explanation for a, a raised D-dimer in, in these cases? Um, unfortunately, it's a very common scenario you just described because I guess the way our, our clinical triage systems work is um, there may be a symptom on a referral letter um, a person has all of the bloods including D-dimers and troponins all sent and suddenly you find that you're interpreting that person's story in the context of an already positive maybe classically a, a, a weekly positive D-dimer and then I think you're, you, that's when you have to use your, your clinical assessment to go back back to that ticking that history you know it's possible but how likely is it and I think getting a second opinion, getting a more senior source who, who's seen many, many presentations before to come and assess that person before you immediately request the scan. That's probably quite helpful. But there's no nice way to do that. But I think one of the very informal ways I use, you know, I guess if you're presenting with, there's an awful lot of overlap between pneumonia or lower respiratory tract infection and um, pulmonary embolism, particularly if you are somebody with you know, chronic lung disease, COPD, something like that, there's nothing much in you in your chest x-ray uh, and your, your symptoms absolutely overlap and perhaps you've been in the hospital recently, all those confounding factors that make it hard to work out what's going on acutely. So again, it goes back to the history, how abrupt is the change in the person's breathlessness, um, how much of this looks more like sepsis. Um, you know, what are the other inflammatory markers doing? What's the white count? What's the CRP? Are they bringing up purulent sputum or is it um, just a, an abrupt change in their breathlessness? Um, are there any other clinical features? Is there a swollen calf? Are they describing any calf symptoms? And then even, it, it, it's not a well, it's not a well-recognized approach, uh, but certainly I, I always uh, take note of how how elevated is the CRP compared to the elevation in the D-dimer? Um, is the, the CRP 
you know, stuntingly elevated and the D-dimer is just, just up a little bit? Or is it the opposite? The D-dimer is, is, you know, up into the thousands with a mild increase in the CRP. And I find that a helpful um, ratio to look at to help me understand how likely I think it is for this person. That's a really useful insight into your lens or perspective and how you assess these patients, James. So it is absolutely not validated in any way. <laughs> <laughs> so, James, that leads us nicely on to my next question. And really what I wondered if we could talk about how we should best manage our patients, assuming that we have confirmed that they have had PE on their appropriate imaging, be it CTPA or their VQ scan. How do we best manage these patients? And, and what kind of risk assessment can we use in our investigation of these patients? Yeah, um, so I guess PE is something that uh, can terrify people, uh, and rightly so. It can be a life-threatening event, and we should take it very, very seriously. So I guess that the most important thing to, to assess first and foremost is what, what's the risk of this person's event if we're assuming that they do have a PE, well, what's the current risk? And I really like the the way this has been presented in recent years through a combination of the European Society of Cardiology in collaboration with the European Respiratory Society. They they reframed it all back in 2014, and actually they, they revised all their guidance at the end of 2019. And it was all beginning, the word was beginning to spread, but unfortunately there has been a global pandemic, so it's all been forgotten about. Uh, but yeah, so, so they, I, I guess the, the traditional approach would have been terminologies like massive, submassive, and non-massive, which, which are, are relatively well understood and certainly they're in, in clinical language historically. And uh, one of the tricks, one of the challenges around that is you know, you might get a radiology report of a CT pulmonary angiogram describing massive clot or large volume clot. And I guess the that does not necessarily correlate with how unwell that person is, what's the clinical syndrome for that person. So I really like the, the, the risk-based model that's been proposed over the last number of years. So we now think of it as high risk, intermediate risk, and low risk. I guess within that, it, it roughly correlates to the size of the clot that's present, how proximal it is, and very importantly, what effects it's having on the right heart in particular. So I guess that, that the highest risk group is, is the, the old massive group, and that's the group that are shocked, that are clinically shocked. There's evidence of, of organ hypoperfusion, and they are hypotensive despite fluid replacement. There's the, the other end of the, the spectrum is the low risk group, so they're the ones with the smaller clots, that get all the way out um, through the pulmonary vasculature into the small branches and then wedge distally and cause distal infarction with pleuritic chest pain. And then there's that really challenging group in the middle, the intermediate risk group, who have perhaps a relatively proximal clot, significant clot load affecting perhaps the main pulmonary arteries and have right heart strain on um, CT or echocardiography, they may well have elevated troponin, but they, they haven't as yet compromised their, their cardiac output. They haven't compromised their blood pressure, which makes it particularly challenging. So I guess that's the, the modern classification that we use. So James, what would your advice be for our, our medical trainees and your doctors who, who see patients who are, they think, unwell 
and then in that hypotensive, shocked type of patient clinical assessment. What what kind of decisions are you making when you, when you see a patient like that? Yeah, so so I guess you're you're describing there the, the high risk group. So so you're a shocked person, and and in many ways uh, that that becomes relatively easy. Um, shock makes it easy. Your risk of of mortality there is is high, uh, and trading that off against your risk of of the treatment, which is uh, I guess the, the risk of bleeding. Um, usually the, the risk benefit favors aggressive treatment in, in the shock person. Now, I, I guess I'd, I'd be really keen to emphasize that all of this is is individual case-based. Um, none of this is a global rule by any means. And I think the key thing here is having senior decision makers physically assess that person and, and as part of that process. One of the, one of the ways I, I've noticed, uh, you know, in the moment or, or retrospectively is uh, to recognize people that may be presenting with higher risk events is that horrible history of, of syncope or pre-syncope at home. So not infrequently you might, we see an awful lot of people coming in after some sort of syncope or, or fall or collapse at home and it can be unclear as to what's happening. But, uh, you know, somebody who comes in with hypoxia, uh, a borderline blood pressure, nothing on their chest x-ray and a history of collapse at home, that should be sending off alarm bells uh, in anybody's head to suggest that this may well be a high-risk event uh, and we need to take it very seriously. Uh, we need to fill them up with fluids and, and get some imaging to confirm the diagnosis. In, in recent times, again, I've noticed uh, almost a step back. Uh, it used to be very hard to obtain acute imaging, acute CT pulmonary angiogram, uh, particularly out of ours, depending on where you worked. Uh, but that had improved o- over the last number of years. But over the last six months, 12 months, I- I've, noticed, I've been involved with a few uh, cases whilst perhaps working in uh, the acute receiving unit, whereby out of ours, relatively junior members of the emergency team have been told that, no, that this person doesn't need a scan out of ours, it can wait till the morning. Uh, and I think it's it's really important that we, we don't accept that, you know, um, in, in modern practice in a big centre. Uh, if we have uh, the luxury of imaging on site, we must image these people uh, because I think it does really make a difference. If somebody's come in that unwell, um, a history of syncope or pre-syncope, and you're suspicious of pulmonary embolism, this person really must be scanned because it informs all the subsequent decisions that we can make for this person. It's incredibly challenging and risky to think about, for example, thrombolysis if you don't have a confirmed diagnosis. So you've mentioned thrombolysis as one of our our high-risk therapies for this high-risk patient group. Obviously, there comes a bleeding risk that we need to consent our patients for. And I guess one of my questions would be, in those patients that we're worried about bleeding risk, such as post-operative patients or those with a high risk of bleeding, how would you approach these patients, James? That's that's incredibly tricky, and, and and I hope that it is incredibly challenging for all colleagues because there's no easy answer there. The I guess if we if we strip it back to you know the shocked person, despite the resuscitation, they're still hypotensive. They have a rising lactate and organ hypoperfusion. Um, you know you're and if there's no contraindication, if this is a relatively clean presentation in a young person, probably the risk benefit favors thrombolysis acutely, and that that's relatively straightforward in somebody who has an inherently low bleeding risk. You can get into all kinds of permutations like the the recent um, surgical person or an older person who has an inherently higher risk of bleeding 
on their own and and then you're you're thinking about well what's what's the risk benefit for this person and i think if you describe there for example a, a post-operative person i think the key thing there is to understand what was the nature of that surgery how long ago was it in what space was it you know was it spinal surgery whereby there may be a risk of bleeding into the spine which could be a catastrophe and it's engaging the surgical teams the ones that have done the operation for that person and getting their opinion as well as to what happened intraoperatively how well um was did the surgery go and what what's their perception of the risk for this person i i guess you know at this point, we've just been talking about systemic thrombolysis, which is the classic infusion of alteplase, if you will, uh, which carried its its risk of bleeding. You know, we, we, are, we are in a, a brilliant position at the minute. We have evolving therapies that don't necessarily involve um, systemic thrombolysis. Um, here in the Royal Infirmary, we're, we're very fortunate to have a brilliant uh, team of interventional radiologists who are very keen to become involved in tricky cases of pulmonary embolism. They have a, a great skill set and a range of kit that they can use. Um, they can use things like catheter-directed lysis that, that involves placing catheters into the pulmonary artery, essentially directly into the clot, and, and, and infusing much, much lower doses of, of lysis directly into the clots to, to break them down. So the inference there is that uh, there's a significantly lower uh, risk of bleeding systemically if you're infusing uh, the lysis directly into the clot. I believe it's about 10% of the overall uh, thrombolysis load. You can you can enhance the effects of that by using various devices that, that use ultrasound as well as the lysis. And in, in very recent times, I heard about one of our cases from our critical care whereby the person had an aspiration thrombectomy, which is a similar approach in terms of putting a catheter up into the clot and literally sucking it out uh, with the skill of our interventional radiologist. So that in itself doesn't really present fleeing risk at all. Um, you're literally just trying to suck the clot out acutely. Um, so there are certainly uh, other options that are that are growing in their popularity and their accessibility that don't involve just uh, the blockbusting systemic thrombolysis. And you know, in addition to to the interventional radiology options that we have, uh, if if you're fortunate enough to have uh, cardiothoracic surgery on site or, or, or locally, um, you know, there may be the options of surgical acute surgical embolectomy for certain scenarios you know for example people who have contraindications to thrombolysis or you know depending on the nature of the clot and then in fact earlier this year i was involved in, in the first case that i've experienced whereby a young uh, person came in with a clot that you know even at the front door acute echo you could see the clot extending from the right ventricle crossing uh, the pulmonary valve and into the, the kind of central proximal clot in, in on CTPA um, and you know the risk there of thrombolysis actually you may dislodge that clot that's in the heart and, and potentially worsen the person's outcome uh, so so that person underwent acute um, surgical embolectomy uh, and, and went on ECMO for a number of days and I'm very pleased to say that, that person is doing incredibly well now and is back to work um, so so it, I think in summary, it's not just lysis these days. That, that really should be your first thought. Uh, but if it, if it is more challenging in terms of uh, the risk of that person's bleeding, then there are other options. And again, having that scan at any time of the day is, is very valuable because the scan will inform you about where that clot is, what is the load of the clot, what's the distribution, 
and then that will allow you to understand whether you can involve um, colleagues in, in other disciplines to help uh, with that person. It's really interesting to hear about the, the new treatments that are available and the, the use that imaging has in this senior decision-making. I guess what I want to discuss now is in the patients that come into the ambulatory care unit or the acute medical admissions unit who are maybe less unwell, who have come in with presentation of pleuritic chest pain, but have reassuring physiology. How do we manage these patients at the front door? That's a really good question. So, so we've made leaps and bounds for these uh, folk over the last five years or so. I've been lucky to be part of a group in collaboration with our emergency department, our acute medical team, our haematologists uh, across our sites in NHS Lothian. And, and we, we've built a, an ambulatory care pathway for, for pulmonary embolism. And I guess if you were to take it back five, ten years ago, um, the standard approach to most pulmonary embolism was that you presented, you received a diagnosis, you, you probably stayed in the hospital for at least five days having low molecular weight heparin, and then you surely uh, were switched across to warfarin. Once your INR was therapeutic, uh, after a couple of days, you were then allowed home. So that involved at least five days in a hospital bed with all the associated complications and challenges around that. I, I think we've all recognized that some of these folks have had low volume events, low risk events, according to, for example, the, the PE severity index. And they might be otherwise well people, for example, maybe a young person who has had a, an ankle fracture playing sports, who ends up in, in some sort of cast or a moon boot, is immobile and comes in with a, you know, a low volume pulmonary embolism that causes a bit of pleuritic chest pain, but no systemic make upset at all and then they have to sit in a hospital bed for five days while we establish their, their therapy so i think with the recognition that this person didn't probably need to be in a hospital but also the advent of the direct oral anticoagulants uh, we've been able to take real leaps towards ambulating these folks and it's been i think on the whole a real success that you can come in to hospital um, have somebody assess you and you be perhaps suspected to have a pulmonary embolism. We can use the, those risk assessment tools such as the PE severity index. And if they have a low simplified or PE severity index um, and they look well and there's no other complicating factors around their lifestyle and that somebody's going to look after them and they can return to the hospital if there's any problems, you may well ambulate these folks. Uh, and that involves usually giving them a one-off dose of, of low molecular weight heparin subcutaneously if they come in in the evening and then coming back for a very planned and controlled re-evaluation and a scan the next morning whereby we can confirm or refute the diagnosis and then begin the process of educating that person about what their diagnosis is um, and establish them on a direct oral anticoagulant. The one that we hear use here most frequently is a Pixaban. So James, that's really useful and I think what you're saying is that ambulatory care has really changed how we manage these patients coming in a low PESI or PE severity index score. What should we be doing with these patients after we've sent them home? So, so I think it's really key that these folks have some sort of safety netting because there is always a risk of that person having a further event or a complication due to the treatment, such as an adverse reaction or bleeding. So, so although you know we're, we're very much in favour of ambulating those that appear to be at low risk of, of harm, 
it, that we must safety net them somehow. So I guess the standard of care would be uh, that they get a follow-up one week down the line, and certainly that's how we've approached it locally. So they either get an in-person or telephone consultation one week down the line, and then all of these patients who have experienced a pulmonary embolism here will come to the, the, the pulmonary embolism clinic that we run through the respiratory unit in the Royal Infirmary uh, at three months post-event. So that, that's how we, we've been practicing over the last five years or so. And it was uh, very encouraging to read the British Thoracic Society issued some guidance around this in 2018. And actually, it was very heartening to see that everything that they were advocating, we were already doing. Um, so it was about that acute assessment, that pragmatic assessment, um, establishing the diagnosis, establishing the therapy, information and education, and then good follow-up. Um, so it's really nice to see that our practice aligns to what's now established as, as best practice um, nationwide. Is there anything that we discuss with these patients at follow-up? So, for instance, whether or not they should continue their anticoagulation therapy, or in some cases, should we be thinking about what, what actually caused their acute PE, such as an underlying disease process, which we don't know about yet? Yes, absolutely. Um, I guess the what you're probably describing there is is what what, what do we do at pulmonary embolism clinic? Um, so so that's a, a separate entity. Um, here we we run it through the, the respiratory unit, um, and uh, our our goal is to see people at three months post event. Uh, and that's, uh, again, a standard time interval uh, because what we want to do is, is give people some time to recover, give them some time to process what's happened to them, and then you can start to make um, more useful decisions. If you see people who've had pulmonary embolism very quickly, um, they still won't be over it. They'll still be breathless and, and having pains and things, and it's not that helpful prognostically. Um, so I guess we, we set up the, the pulmonary embolism clinic here about five years ago and uh, it, it, it you know I, I think it adds significant value to that person's uh, care and their experience so I guess we we have the luxury of sitting down with the person ideally in person and uh, and we go through the entire story again and and it's quite striking how how a story can change during those three months compared to what you read for perhaps in the acute assessment compared to what the person then tells you once they've had some time to think about uh, what happened and we so the first question we ask ourselves is uh, you know what was it a PE was it a pulmonary embolism or not so so we reevaluate all of the the scans that were performed and every now and again actually um, you identify uh, you know a per technical quality scan with some breathing art effect on it that was done you know in the early hours of the morning and you know it there was no real convincing pulmonary embolism on it, but um, you know, in, in the heat of the moment, the teams have erred on the side of caution, as you probably would, and, and they've anticoagulated the person. But I think with, with hindsight or retrospect, you know, the this, this story could change quite significantly, and it may well have been that that person had an infection or had some other event, and there was no real evidence of, of pulmonary embolism to begin with. So I think we add value at that point by... Firstly, clarifying the diagnosis. 
beyond that, then we reevaluate. Well, how bad was it? You know, we, we reevaluate what was the risk of that event? Was it high? Was it intermediate? Was it low? And although you know the the risk of the initial event does not correlate with the risk of recurrent events, there's something very compelling about a high risk prevent. Uh, you know, perhaps an unprovoked high risk event in a person that, that may well affect your decision making about how likely you are to keep them on or, or, or stop them out the coagulation. So I guess the main thing that we spend our time on at a peak clinic is, is re-exploring that story and understanding why did it happen. So, so I guess a very long time ago it used to be if you have one clot, you get six months of blood thinning. If you have a clot ever again, you get lifelong blood thinning. And it was quite black or white and, and I guess relatively straightforward. Over the last decade or so, we, we now know we can do better than that. And it's about individualizing that person's uh, risk profile. And I guess five years ago, it, it became more of a provoked, unprovoked categorization. And I guess the classic provoking factor would be, you know, orthopedic surgery, as we've described already, or, or hospitalization with a, a critical or severe illness. But more and more over the last number of years, we've had people coming with, you know, events that happened in, in more murky waters, you know, a, a more grey scale, if you will, of why did it happen. So, for example, a, a bit of travel or a bit of reduced mobility um, or even the oral contraceptive pill, um, you know, why do certain people clot when there are hundreds of thousands of people in similar scenarios who are not clotting. Um, so I think our job is to think a bit beyond you know, black or white and think about what, what was that person's risk factor or provoking factor initially? What were the ingredients that made them clot? How much additional provoking factor did they need to clot, which informs the decisions about how long do we keep them on anticoagulation? And what I was really impressed by in, in the recent um, ESC and ERS guideline was recognition of the uncertainty there. So they've gone away from the provoked, unprovoked black or white risk profile into a more, you know, chronic recurrence risk. And they've um, compartmentalized that into a low, intermediate and a high group. And the, I guess the low recurrence risk group might be those that had surgery or were bed bound and are now mobile and, and are over that illness. The intermediate risk group might be that group, you know, in terms of long haul flights or all contraceptive pills, those kinds of things. And I guess that the high risk of recurrence groups are those with active cancer, those who have personal histories of VTE. And so I guess it just putting it out that way reflects the, the challenge of just simply categorizing people into black or white, yes or no. And I think, you know, spending time thinking about that is where we add value in terms of how long do we keep that person on antiquity. So, James, that's really useful for us as clinicians to try to assess the risk of recurrence of a thrombotic event in these patients that we see. Um, often we, we think about whether an underlying process of perhaps an infective disorder or an inflammatory disorder or a malignant disorder could be contributing to our patients' presentations or an ongoing risk. Um, is there any guidance on how we, we assess for this risk of malignancy or other disease processes in these patients? Yeah, yeah. So, so that, that's a really interesting point and, and probably one that's gone back and forward uh, with various approaches over the years. Um, and I guess historically, you know, we, we, we recognise that, that cancer active malignancy is a pro-thrombotic state uh, and occasionally a pulmonary embolism or a deep venous thrombosis might be the first presenting symptom of a malignancy. I, I think with, with hindsight, we probably recognise that 
the presence of occult malignancy is less common than was historically thought. And it used to be that if somebody came in with, a, you know, what appears to be an unprovoked or, or a pulmonary embolism for no reason, then they may well have a CT abdomen and pelvis and various other tests um, to assess for occult malignancy. Um, yeah, so, so we, we have... Uh, not taking that direct approach, um, what we what we do is, you know, we screen for malignancy. Certainly, one of the beautiful things about pulmonary embolism is if you have a CT pulmonary angiogram, you've already imaged um, the entire thorax as well as the upper abdomen. Um, so I think we have the luxury there of being able to assess whether there's malignancy present a lot of the time already. Um, and I think one of the other values of the, the PE clinic is, you know, we, we've had a time interval and it may be that the person then presents to you with some new symptoms or some weight loss or something else that you can then um, go hunting for. So, so the, the approach that we take is, is uh, a broad screening tool, and that, that's simply about their history, their examination findings. It's about systemic features that the person may, may now have, any change in their weight. Um, we're looking back through their bloods. Is there any anemia? Are they an older person? Do we need to think about myeloma? Is it a, a male who needs a, a PSA? Those kinds of things. Um, and I guess the approach we take is to have a very, very low threshold to hunt down any signal that we're getting. Um, now, by that, I do not mean that everybody gets a scan at all. Um, and, you know, actually the, the data around that is, is not great and it really probably doesn't enhance the great other outcomes. So what we do is really we, we, we just revise the history, the examination. We make sure everybody's had a urine dipstick. We know they've already had a good image of their, their, their thorax and upper abdomen. And if there's a, even a hint on the bloods or on the person's history of malignant type symptoms, then, then we will go hunting with scopes or scans or whatever we need to go hunting with. Um, with respect, particularly to uh, females, um, they should be up to date with uh, full breast examination and or mammograms as appropriate. If there's any concern whatsoever, we'll be referring them across to our breast team and they should be up to date with their cervical smears. So uh, again, one of the benefits of this clinic is hopefully a relatively holistic approach to why this person had their clot. Interestingly, um, again, another set of guidance that came out just on the eve of the pandemic. Um, NICE brought out their new VTE um, assessment and management guideline in, in, in March 2020, which again was understandably um, overlooked by, by many groups because of the, the COVID pandemic. But ultimately, they, they've, they've made a subtle but important change in their recommendation. So the previous guidance from about 2012 uh, suggested consider performing a CT abdomen and pelvis in unprovoked events uh, and now they've changed that language and they're now using the terminology do not perform CT abdomen and pelvis unless there's clinical suspicion symptoms etc so so a subtle but I think important shift in the message there. James that's a really clear summary of your process when you see patients return to the PE clinic is there anything else that you screen for in terms of complications of an acute PE illness? Uh, yeah, so, so I, one of the, the main things that we're, we're using the clinic for is, is to screen for the infrequent but very important complication of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension or CTEF. 
uh, and we estimate about one to two percent of people who present with PE will, will develop CTEF, um, and it's probably those with more recurrent events and, and higher volume events, and those that are presenting initially with right heart strain. Um, but again, you can be surprised. It can be the, the slightly lower risk events who, who eventually present with it. Uh, and one of our roles is to pick up on that. Um, I think that that's something that we can do well within this clinic. Um, one of the reasons it's important is that we can do things about it. So it's not just, you know, an academic process to get a diagnosis. It's because we, we have the brilliant Scottish pulmonary vascular unit that's run by our colleagues over in the Golden Jubilee in Glasgow. Um, and if we suspect or confirm that this person has ongoing pulmonary hypertension, um, the way we might do that is, you know, have the ongoing breathlessness, do they have peripheral edema, so the history, the examination, uh, and then we'll probably send them for an up-to-date echocardiogram, transthoracic in the first instance. They'll probably get an update VQ scan um, and some in-depth pulmonary function tests around their gas exchange, exertional desaturation, those kinds of things. And if we're building that picture of, of chronic thromboembolic disease, we'll send them across to the, the Scottish Pulmonary Vascular Unit who will likely perform uh, a direct right heart catheterization, measure those pressures directly, understand what they, they can test for vasodilatory drugs within uh, that process and understand what that person's going to respond to. And ultimately, from that you know, small group of people, a small number of those may well be appropriate for a pulmonary endarterectomy, um, which is exactly what it says in the tin, so they may well go down to Papworth and have that, that residual central clot load stripped away uh, in a very impressive fashion, in many ways a, a curative surgery for this unusual condition. So I think that that's a really interesting thing to screen for. Um, but I guess one of the things that, that we we see much more commonly are, are, are twofold. One is the the, the post PE syndrome, if you will, um, and, and that's the person who you know has had a pulmonary embolism, no doubt, but premorbidly may well have been overweight or had coexisting cardiorespiratory disease or diabetes, and they take such a physiological insult uh, that, that they are completely deconditioned and, and not well following their pulmonary embolism. Um, interestingly, the, the, again, those, those European guidelines from last year have, have, have come up with a term for this and they've called it persisting symptoms and functional limitation. And that's despite what appears to be a normal right heart on the echo and relatively well-preserved lung function. And these folks are another group, quite a common group, um, and they need a really intense rehabilitation uh, program and to be told that you know the heart's okay the lungs are okay you've just taken this big injury and we need to work with you to to get you better uh, and sometimes them hearing the reassurance bit of it is enough to empower them to start pushing themselves maybe get a personal trainer or an exercise program that will allow them to get back to fitness and functionality maybe maybe the last thing i might say on that is is something that i think is hugely underrecognized and that's the psychological impact of this disease um, I, I, I sometimes think that a third of what I do is, is medicine and two thirds of it is, is um, amateur counselling and amateur psychology. Um, we, we have a, a high anxiety uh, burden in this um, population. And you can understand why, particularly if it's a relatively young person who has come in and for no obvious reason has had a life-threatening event. I mean, that's a catastrophic um, traumatic episode that they've gone through and when they when they find out that there's no obvious reason for it and and they're informed that 
you know, here's some treatment for it. It may or may not happen again, but this is the best treatment we've got. You can imagine how, how difficult that is for that person. Uh, and I think, you know, we, we could do a lot better with the psychological support that we offer these people um, longer term. And I think um, an awful lot of their, their worries reflect the uncertainty and the uncertain nature of, of this condition. Um, and, you know, we, we've, we've made various things, including one of our registrars, Alex Teagle, led with, with support from uh, colleagues from around Lothian um, in, in terms of developing a, a pulmonary embolism patient information leaflet. And we were now distributing that to everybody who has had an event. And it just really sets out the expectations of how long we anticipate you will be unwell for, what to expect over the next number of months, what kind of follow-up you will receive, and, and hopefully a tool to reassure people that this is all okay. Um, you know, you're on the right treatment, you'll get over this, but you know, setting that expectation that it will take some time and, and that's all right and we will, we will do our best to support you. So I think, um, um, yeah, the, the psychological impact from the physical injury is under-recognized and something we need to continue to work uh, to manage better. Thank you for explaining that uh, so eloquently, James. It's really pleasing to hear that what you're saying, James, it sounds like we, we really are driving a, an individualized, personalized approach to our patients and how they present with their PE. You mentioned that it's difficult now to, to see our patients face to face in this current climate of pandemic. In, in your view, how has COVID affected the, the PE landscape in clinical practice? Oh, uh, I thought we were going to get away without saying the word COVID in this, John. Um, the COVID, of course, of course, we all now recognise that it is extremely pro-thrombotic. And, you know, I, I think over the first month or two of, of our pandemic, as we experienced it here in Edinburgh, you know, around mid-March onwards, we, we started seeing people coming in unwell and then having sudden deterioration. And, and the more we, we, we started scanning people, the more we realized clot was present. And I guess it was first recognized in the critical care cohort when they appeared to be very heparin resistant. Um, so despite standard prophylactic doses of, of low molecular heparin, these people were, were clotting and having deteriorations on ventilators and lines clotting. Uh, an awful lot of their CTPAs showed clot. So there's no doubt that, that some of the deteriorations from COVID and some of the deaths were probably clot-associated. Lots of clever people in, in the, the hematology and immunology world, infectious diseases, have, have looked into this in more detail. And I guess the, the, the trick is trying to establish what, what's the nature of that clot. Is it fibrin-rich? Is it platelet-rich? Is it the classic pulmonary embolism where you know you have, I guess, deep venous thrombosis and, and part of it dislodges and, and wedges in the lungs? Or is it this uh, different, I, I guess, different process of immunothrombus? So if, if the end point of all inflammation is, uh, is thrombus, you know, is it the an inflammatory process itself? Is it the associated profound hypoxemia, which is known to be prothrombotic? And it, should the treatment of those folks, should it be treating the underlying process or should it be with anticoagulation? And I'm not sure that anybody truly knows the answer yet. Um, certainly, there, there is a school of thought that thinks that, you know, um, the morbidity, mortality benefits associated with dexamethasone that we that, that's quite established now. Um, a lot of people are wondering about how much of that is due to reduction in immunothrombus rather than, you know, uh, the pneumonitic effects. 
Yeah, and in addition, you know, out with the out of work in intensive care, um, but you know, our experience locally was, you know, working in the COVID assessment unit in terms of an acute medical assessment unit and into the respiratory uh, unit. Um, we we had a really interesting um, series of events whereby we were seeing people. We we, we built up a recognition that people with severe COVID, I, and by that I mean. COVID pneumonitis with severe hypoxemia, um, you know, they're significant risk of, of clotting. There's no doubt about that. Um, and in intensive care units, they were using a lot of enhanced venous thromboembolic prophylactic drugs, such as, you know, higher doses of, of, of daltoparin. Out with the critical care zone, we noticed a series of, of people coming in with non-severe COVID in terms of experiencing their COVID illness there in the community. Um, without an oxygen requirement, but they were certainly hyperpyrexic at home, lying on the sofa feeling miserable, particularly, you know, a group of uh, overweight, middle-aged male patients. And then at day 10, day 12, they were coming in with a deterioration. Um, and we identified quite a number of large volume proximal clot um, that we, we hadn't seen before. And, you know, the, we, we looked at some of the numbers around um, the standard uh, incidence of, of uh, positive CTPAs and things in, in our local practice. And certainly there was a, a significant additional um, incidence there just due to what we thought was community-based COVID. And then these people presenting with large volume proximal clot with a much greater proportion of these folks coming in with right heart strain than we would historically see with our non-COVID population. So for us, that was really interesting process that we went through. And, and once we had recognised that, we started scanning everybody. As you can imagine, the biases kicked in. Uh, and we, the more you look for it, the more you find uh, those COVID-associated clots. We're now at the point whereby we're seeing most of those people back through the clinic. Thankfully, the vast majority of them are improving. And at this point, our challenge is teasing out what which of their limitations are the post-COVID limitations, the deconditioning, and how much of it is, is going to end up being chronic thrombolic pulmonary hypertension or, or something to that effect. So uh, that's an ongoing story. Thank you so much, James, for talking through how our patients present with PE, and certainly, especially in this pandemic period. What, what were your key messages from our, our conversation today? Oh, if I were to suggest some some take-home messages or, or, or takeaway messages pulmonary embolism is, is a fascinating disease it can affect anyone and it can be a very very small low risk event all the way through to the other end of the spectrum whereby you can die instantaneously i think always keep it in the back of your mind as a possible uh, part of the differential for anybody presenting with respiratory type symptoms um if i were to you know suggest some lessons that I've learned over the years. Uh, if, if the question has been raised, could this be a, a pulmonary embolism that this person has got? Number one is go and see the person yourself. Go and take their history, dig in around the onset of the symptoms. What happened there? What's been going on over the last couple of days or weeks in terms of predisposing factors and how likely is it at this point? Um, if you think it might be musculoskeletal, palpate that area and see if you can reproduce the pain. That might be all you need to send the person away safely. I would maybe also suggest that if you think that this is a, a pulmonary embolism and you're worried about that person, you make sure they get scanned. I think that's really key to clinching that diagnosis, irrespective of the time of day, and it informs all the other high-risk decisions that you're going to make together. 
I think if you're worried about the person, you know, getting people who are senior and interested uh, to work collaboratively for that person and make those decisions together is key. And that might be, for example, um, senior emergency physicians, senior acute physicians, respiratory physicians, critical care team, radiologists and interventional radiologists, even surgeons, all in a room together or remotely. Um, this, this model of, I guess, a PE response team to make solid decisions together as opposed to one person making them in isolation. And our decisions are always more robust together. If they're shocked, consider thrombolysis. If you're worried about the bleeding risk, consider those other options we discussed, like catheter-associated or catheter-directed um, therapies, even surgical therapies. What about the other end of the spectrum? If, 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 they're, if they're fine, consider ambulating them. If you're not sure about the scan, how technically well done was that scan, then rescan them. You know, it, it's much more important that you rescan the person in the, in the light of day than, than commit them to three or perhaps more months of anticoagulation that was not necessary. Nowadays, it's all about starting with direct oral anticoagulants, even in, in the case of cancer, unless the person's actively bleeding, we're, we're, we're much more in favour of direct oral anticoagulation. And I guess get them to a, a PE clinic at three months, whereby we can sit down with the person and have the luxury of some more time with them to think about why did it happen? Are there any complications? Could there be a malignancy driver for this? And, and, and thinking a bit more broadly around that and, and make some more, I, I guess, measured decisions about how long should this person be on anticoagulation. That's great, James. Dr. Tiernan, thank you very much for this whistle-stop tour of acute pulmonary embolism. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. Thank you, James. My pleasure, Donnie. Thank you for the opportunity to, to speak with you today. I really enjoyed it. Myself as well. And for our listeners, please feel free to leave any comments or suggestions via our Instagram and Twitter pages via the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh website. Once again, thank you, James.